I encourage you to open God's Word with me this morning, the living and active Word of our God. We're going to consider several verses from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Every now and then, depending on the circumstances and the, what's going on, we'll break from our regular series in a book or a letter of the Bible and feast on a different portion of God's Word. So that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. And something that's really captured my interest, my attention, study as of late, is the reality, all that flows from the reality of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our union with Jesus that just encapsulates all that we are now, our identity, our purpose, all the sweet truths of our salvation that we're continually growing into. So I want to direct our minds to that. Uh, this morning, just that, that glorious union that is all over the lips, all over the writing of the Apostle Paul. Uh, the church in Corinth, not unlike most local churches that I can think of, it's kind of busted up. Um, there are a host of issues that Paul is speaking into, trying to diffuse misunderstanding, miscommunication, power grabs, immorality, all of those things. He's done this in the first letter, now he's responding again in his second letter. And in, in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 4, it says that he writes to them out of anguish of heart. You kind of see you know, Paul's eyes just welling up as he pens these words. He doesn't want to create more tension, more pain, but because he's writing because he loves the church. He loves these people. Wants nothing more than for them to walk in obedience to the Lord who has reconciled to them. Important for us to remember, and that Paul makes known, he doesn't need the endorsement of the church for his own apostleship, for his own ministry. He's made that clear. But he also says that they themselves are his endorsement the way that they live by the Spirit of God. So in both letters, but particularly in this letter, in 2 Corinthians, um, Paul's boasting in his own weakness. It's right there that the power and strength of God is made known, the sufficiency uh, of God in his ministry, in his, in his plea, in his writing. Uh, it's all there. Nothing shows us more than God's work of reconciliation, uh, restoring us to himself. So I'm going to begin reading at verse... 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, and then I will go through verse 21. Paul speaking of himself, the ministry of the apostles, and what that means for all in the church. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their, for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the enduring word of our God. Let's thank him for it. Lord God, we do thank you for this word. A great and heavy word, a powerful word. Shows us what you have done for us. Lord, help us now as we search your word. Teach us, encourage us, admonish us, move us as faithful ambassadors for you. Lord, speak faithfully now through your servant. Make us attentive. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have some time, you can still watch the Antique Roadshow on PBS. Uh, I don't think I've watched a full episode all the way through, but it's just fascinating. It's really interesting to watch this show as people dig out what they have in the attic or something they found at Goodwill or another thrift store or something that was handed down to them and then they they, bring in an expert on this particular item or these particular types of items and they assess what it is they really have and they appraise its value. And this doesn't happen all the time, but it's television, so I think it happens more often than not while you're watching, is people are just blown away. You know, they've got an old tool or a piece of furniture or a vase or a picture, and then they find out that this is a this is an original Picasso. Or this is, you know, one of two models that this, you know, person, this uh, artist created. Um, And it's worth, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, It's fascinating to watch. But, and it's something they had. All they needed was someone to point this out, was someone to share with them, "This, this is the value of what you've got. Now, we look at ourselves, ourselves in, in the mirror. I'll stop talking about antiques if I'm talking about looking at ourselves in the mirror. But when we look at ourselves, we look at our situations, we look at our circumstances, we look at what it is we're worried about. Um, it can be hard for us to see really anything different, that anything has really changed because we are a Christian. It can be hard for us to see a, you know, a spiritual change, a change in, in a Godward direction or movement hard for us to believe that anything has you know really happened so seeing who we are valuing what we have in union with jesus that's hard for us we, we need the light of truth we need someone to show us and remind us not only of who we are but what we've been given and the infinite worth of this union and Paul says it's because of Jesus, this union with Jesus, that you are a new creation. You've been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you have a new identity that operates very differently, that views the world very differently than before, than the old way. And he'll use that language of old man and new man in Ephesians chapter 4. The new has come, and that means something very, very significantly for Paul. It means it means something for us as we read. And he takes the time here to really lay out the foundation, the basis of his own reconciliation before he calls the church, those outside of the church, to be reconciled to God. And so you and I need to understand, maybe it's for the first time this morning, maybe it's just renewed astonishment 
by the reconciliation of God. What He has accomplished for us in the union that we have with His Son. In verse 18, we, you know, we just heard, all this is from God. From God through Christ. That's where we're going to start. It's where the Apostle starts. Because of all that, because of all that God has done, um, that's where we're going to move. From Christ through, through us. So, from God through Christ, from God through us. Uh, is how we'll, we'll step through this. Um, you know, at one time in the years before Paul was, was writing this letter, he, he had known Jesus. But he had known Jesus in a very different way than he knows him right now. As far as we know, that Paul had never seen Jesus in the flesh, but he had watched some of his followers. And so to Paul, Jesus is, well, he's just another false messiah. He's a fanatic. He's, he's brainwashed people to thinking that you know, he had been raised from the dead. And of course, that, that's outside the, the true religion that Paul knew so well until the Lord stops him in his tracks. The death and resurrection of Jesus and his appearance radically changed Paul. And he, he admits, you know, as people may be misunderstanding him and his intentions now as an apostle, that he also misunderstood, he misread Jesus. He admits that. He saw him according to the flesh. See that in verse 16. So he didn't ignore the, the earthly, in-flesh actions of Jesus, but he no longer judges and views Jesus by that old standard, the unspiritual, worldly view. His view of Christ is no longer according to the flesh. It's new, it's spiritual. And this is the view now he takes with every person. A spiritual, eternal lens is where he starts. He says in the first letter uh, to the church in Corinth, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, according to the flesh. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So Paul is no longer making this human assessment using worldly you know, human yardsticks to measure people. That's what the flesh does. What the old does. It lives for itself. It judges others for how they may or may not benefit oneself. So it's important for us to see Jesus according to God's Word. Not with the human standards, the other categories that may be popular in our time. You know, for a long time, I thought I had this perception that babysitters were inherently grumpy and just mean people. I, I don't know, I, I was reading a lot of Calvin Hobbes at the time, poor Rosalind, the babysitter. Um, I don't know if that influenced this at all. But then there was Dan who lived down the street from us and he came over to babysit and Dan was, well, he was pretty nice. And he would play with me and he was, seemed to be interested in the things I was interested in. Until, you know, it was a long time ago, until I, I finally looked forward to Dan coming over for a little while. No perception had, had changed. What are your perceptions or judgments of Jesus? If according to the flesh, then he may be a good teacher or, or a good role model. He may, Maybe a little egocentric at times. Maybe a little misguided. 
but still worth paying attention to. If your judgment is shaped by the Word and the Spirit of God working through the Word, you'll see Him in a new way. You'll see Him as Savior and Lord of all. That was true for Paul. He was never the same because of it. Led him to write those words in verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, new creature. The old, the views, the judgments, the conclusions of the flesh, that's what has passed. Now the new, that's the spiritual life, spiritual perception, uh, perception and judgment, that is what uh, has come. How are we made new? We're made new in Christ, he says. How are we in Christ? How do we get into Christ? I love uh, John Piper's very succinct answer to this. He says, at the unconscious and decisive level, it is God's sovereign work. 1 Corinthians 1, because of God, you are in Christ. At the conscious level, the level of our own action is through faith. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 is that God would dwell in the hearts of His people through faith. By faith, which, is, which itself is a gift from God, we are united to Christ. Being in Christ brings a radical change in a person's life. Not just a refurbishment. Don't think, I think we often will think of it like that, as a refurbishment of our lives. You know, kind of a touch-up, a clean-up. Uh, sort of a fix-up so that we're usable again. Or maybe we look nice again. No, we, we have a new identity. We're seeing the world in a whole new way. New desires. Now our bodies are going to look the same. We'll have to face some of the same challenges, the same fears, some of the same temptations. But our values and our behavior will change with the regeneration of the heart. We're now able to live for the one who has reconciled us. Not just for ourselves, we're new. I think if anyone could understand this, it would have been the Apostle Paul. I mean, can you think of a more dramatic, sort of radical new life conversion than Paul's experience? On that road to Damascus, you can read in Acts chapter 9 or chapter 22, if you need a refresher on that. I was thinking of you know, and a more modern example, maybe you've heard, read the story of Rosaria Butterfield. Um, I mean, talk about an unlikely convert, and that's how she, what she titles her first book, The Secrets of an Unlikely Convert. Maybe even a little more than Paul, unlikely as a convert. PhD, tenured English professor at Syracuse, and fully entrenched in a very confused lesbian lifestyle. Um, her specialty was or was going to be on how to debunk the biblical sexual ethic from the perspective of a postmodern gay and lesbian studies. She was going to argue against that. Um, and then through a series of events, uh, which we know is God's providence, um, she came in contact with some other Christians who didn't just slam the door in her face, but invited her in asking uh, questions. And I want to read for you just a little bit of what she said. Um, you know, she started reading the Bible for research. Um, she said, I tried to toss the Bible and all of its teachings in the trash. I really tried. But I kept reading it, reading it not just for pleasure, but reading it because I was engaged in a research program trying to refute the religious right from a lesbian feminist perspective. And after my second or third, maybe my fourth, 
passed through the entire Bible, something started to happen. The Bible got bigger, got to be bigger inside me than I. And it absolutely overflowed into my world. I really fought against it. And then one Sunday morning, no different from any other Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lover. An hour later, I sat in a church pew. I went there very conspicuous of the fact that I didn't fit in. But I really had to confront this God. And later she talks about her conversion. She says, you know, this was my conversion in a nutshell. I lost everything but the dog. Um, but what did she find? She lost everything but the dog. But in return, she found new life in Jesus Christ. She's given new life. What changed her? The the Holy Spirit working through the inspired Word of God. Like how the ESV translates the force of this statement in verse 17. With that word, behold, pay attention. Okay, this is big. The new has come. It's as big as what Christ communicated to John in his revelations in chapter 2, verse 15. Behold, the new has come. So the new creation reality, what is to come, has come for the Christian. I guess you could say in Jesus, we're from the future. As much as we are under construction right now. Glorious ruins, to quote the late Francis Schaeffer. Been given new life, reconciled, restored, now enabled to walk in righteousness because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it's by God's initiative alone. It's something that only He can do as our Creator. And it's just marvelous in our eyes. He has chosen to make us new through the substitution of His Son. The substitution that Paul lays out, verses 14 and 15, really seems to reinforce this in verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So something of ours has been credited to Jesus. Something of Jesus has been credited to us. This is that great exchange. If you want to sound smart over the dinner table, you can say how, how this verse really points out, clearly captures the double imputation necessary for our salvation. Jesus, the sinless one, is made a sinner. Remember from our time in Exodus? He's the priest wearing our dirty clothes and willingly goes into the most holy place, into the the very presence of the righteous judge of all creation. What happens when those those who are stained and, and dirty by sin go into the presence of the Holy One? The parallels in Galatians 3. where He became a curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, that's the other consequence. That should put us on our knees in gratitude and praise. We are made righteous by sharing in the righteousness of Jesus. It's not inherent to us. We're wearing His robes, His right standing before God because we are in Him. New life in Him makes all the difference. Literally, a world of difference that puts Jesus on His rightful throne. A love for Him, that, that's, that's the desire, that's now the passion of our hearts. Paul says it's a love for Christ that controls Him. That's in verse 14. No longer living for ourselves. So 
We can then share the, the emptiness and the futility of living for ourselves. I mean, is that evident? Take assessment there. Would this be known by those who spend time with us? Because that's, that's not a message you're going to hear anywhere else. We have new life from God through Christ. All this is from Him, verse 18. So I'm starting to move into that sphere now of from God through us. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So the, the Apostle's not just laying out the you know, the doctrine of atonement here, as clear as that may be, he's establishing the basis of his own ministry. This is God's work. God's initiative to reconcile and to continue to act through those who have been reconciled. He gives the ministry the service of reconciliation. So let's consider the responsibility of that, the privilege that the apostle had that we have we share with Him in union with Christ. Sharing God's work of calling others to be reconciled to Him. This is is the main point of what Jesus Himself preached. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Be reconciled to God is the message. Repent and believe in the Son who for your sake died and was raised. This is God's message. It's what He gives and He will work it upon the heart. So that the content of the message is entrusted to us. But the consequences of, of everyday life are as well. Of this reconciliation. We're continually reconciling. Pleading with others to be reconciled. Here's verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. Making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. You say, well, wait a minute. Paul is writing to people in the church. Shouldn't this whole reconciliation to God, isn't that base covered already? Why why is Paul making this plea right here? I think the answer is maybe, maybe not. But reconciliation within the church can only be done by those who have been reconciled to God. Don't miss the significance of that. You know, why why there seem to be so little peace in the church? There's always an issue. There's always something to be argued about. There's always a battle. There always seems to be some tension. And there there are plenty of angles on how to answer that. But the big one is that there in the church are some who have been reconciled to God and some who have not. The wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats trying to get along. If we are not reconciled to God, our attempts to to reconcile with each other, you know, they may appear successful for a period of time, but it won't be genuine reconciliation. Think, what, what does that look like? We know it's more than just explaining to others what God has done in Christ, as important as that is. It means we have to be a, a, an active reconciler, getting involved, getting our hands dirty, When commentator said, it's taking the risk of bringing harmony in the midst of chaos and confusion. Or being a loving presence in the place of hatred. Now look how Paul is modeling this for us, just in his writing in this letter. He's he's already addressed the the party spirit in his first letter, the, the wealthy trying to take advantage of those who are poor members. 
He's addressed marriage conflict, lawsuits, idolatry, confusion in worship. He is not ignoring the sin that's present in the church. He's addressing it head on. See, God God has not equipped Paul and sent him to the churches to make people feel good about themselves or their relationship to God. He's he's come to, to affect real peace. Genuine reconciliation. And, this, and genuine reconciliation acknowledges sin. There's repentance that goes along with that. And we, we hear in, in 1 Peter 4 that love covers a multitude of sins. But then we also hear of love in 1 Corinthians 13. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. So ignoring or sweeping sin underneath the rug under, in order to protect or keep the peace is not an act of love and cannot bring about the restoration that really God intends for us. So as an ambassador for Christ, Paul, he's pointing to something greater than himself as he makes his appeal. He points to what God has done in Jesus, not what he is doing uh, for Jesus. He makes this appeal uh, on the authority of God, the commission of God, much greater authority than his own. You know, I think of the role of an ambassador, I usually think of of one who has some special status or a privileged status, maybe a little extra protection around an ambassador. Think of the ambassador from one nation to the next. Usually they're, they're rolling out the red carpet. You know, they're received with this great pomp. But that's not what Paul expects. That's not his position, not what the church should expect. We should expect as ambassadors for Christ, there's no immunity or some special status. In Ephesians 6 verse 20, the apostle says that he is an ambassador in chains. He's not ashamed of the chains. It's the chain that actually credential him as an ambassador of Jesus who was beaten and imprisoned and put to death himself. We've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation and lives that really do validate that message, but we don't expect a warm reception in this. In faithfulness, we can expect to share in the sufferings of Christ that we might share in His glory. Future glory, says Anthony Hukuma, will be nothing other than a continued unfolding of the riches of union with Christ. So maybe you'll find that peace in your attic as you're moving, you discover something, a hidden treasure that will just blow you away, as dust and ashes as it is. Are we blown away by the grace of God? Do we really know the value of our union with Jesus Christ? Think, of our, think about value in this last month, how our children have been reminded of the great value of God's Word unto life, this, this truth a treasure worth more than anything else in this world. As I was thinking more about our union with Christ in the West, our tendency is to really stress what Jesus, you know, sort of the, the legal aspects, those doctrines of what Jesus has done. We're called, we're justified, we're sanctified, we're, we're adopted, and here's how that works. It's extremely important, but we, we tend to understress the union the life-sharing aspect of our salvation, a life-sharing that makes all those other facets of our salvation possible. Christ for us, Christ in us must be understood, must be seen as our greatest treasure. 
So it makes us new. Okay, we want to mature. We want others to, to see Christ more in us. We want to see more of Christ in ourselves. You know, we're living in an iPhone world. That's no surprise. It's not a Wii phone. It's an iPhone for a reason. We just can't escape this. This, this selfie world. When we were uh, at General Assembly in Texas, in the lobby of the hotel where the General Assembly was, was being held, there was a self-standing selfie machine. I actually took a picture of this picture-taking machine because it was something I'd never seen before. But there it is, you know, about this high, single touch screen. You could pick a few backgrounds and stand in front of it. Look at me. Here I am. Here's the hotel of the Hilton behind me. Um, you know, even as I, I use that language... It sounds like the kind of language of the old selfie. Verse 15, verse 17. It just sounds like that. But if others are going to see more of Jesus in you and in me, then we need to see what the Father sees. We need to see Jesus in that selfie. We're new creatures. The Father sees the beauty of His Son, of His love, of His obedience when He sees us. I mean, that's the kind of selfie I want to take. That's the kind of selfie we need. We are in Christ. Look at Jesus when you see yourself. As you contemplate this union, you're going to see Jesus more and more. Your neighbors are going to see more of Him as well. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for Your Word that you, Lord God, have united us to Christ. Lord, thank you for feeding us with this great truth this morning. As you feed us now from your table, continue to remind us of our union with Christ. That is what we celebrate. That is what you have secured, the death and resurrection of your Son. Thank you, O God. Thank you, Lord Jesus your love for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.